0: You're listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankwitz. I'm the Director of Youth Ministries. And this week, Pastor Rod Hebel is preaching on a continued series in the Book of Ruth. Enjoy. Last Sunday, we started into the Book of Ruth. It's a short story found in the Old Testament between the Book of Judges and 1 Samuel. And it takes place in a time which is called the Time of the Judges. This is between the time that Joshua led the nation of Israel into the promised land and the time that they would have the monarchy starting with King Saul and then King David. It was about a 400 year period and it wasn't really a good time in the life of Israel. They were quite unstable in their faith, in their keeping the covenant with God. In fact, Judges ends ends off by saying that each person did what was fitting in their own eyes or as some translations say it, they did what was right in their own eyes. And so this was a time of a lack of faith in Israel. Now this is a unique book, predominantly because of the fact that it's written by a woman, and she's a Gentile woman who comes from a neighboring enemy country. Her name, of course, course, is Ruth, and she's from Moab. So she's known as Ruth the Moabitess. Not a popular thing to be known by if you're living in Israel. Ruth is also um, a unique book because of the fact that As a Gentile person, God has included her in that canon of Scripture, in Old Testament Scripture, of which there's only one other book named after a woman, which is Esther. Uh, But Esther was a Jewish woman. This is a Gentile woman. And there seems to be, because of the plan of God, as we know it's going to include the fact that Ruth is included in the line of King David, in the line of Jesus, that there's an emphasis here, that God's redemptive plan for salvation is for all people, uh, even for a Gentile who is a woman named Ruth. So, to recap our story where we left off last week, um, there was a man, Elimelech, who lived in Bethlehem. And Elimelech, whose name means, my God is king, actually lacked faith in his own king. And what he did was, he took his family during this time of famine in Bethlehem, and he looked across the Dead Sea to the east to where Moab is, and literally to where grass was greener over there. And he decides to take his wife, Naomi, his two sons, uh, Melon and Kilion, and move them into Moab. Now this is really a sign of the fact that he's not trusting in his own God to provide for his family needs. He is leaving his property in Israel and taking his family and going to a land which he thinks will provide for him. That was the first mistake that was made. Sadly, Elimelech dies in Moab. And then his sons make a second mistake. They marry Moabite women. This was not to be. God had warned the nation of Israel, don't do that because in the time that you do that, you're going to eventually worship those gods, which probably would have become the case. But tragically, yet again, Naomi suffers more loss in the fact that both sons end up dying in Moab. That leaves Naomi with two daughters-in-law and no one to provide and no one to protect for her. While her name means pleasant, she assesses her own life and she says, I'd rather be called Mara." which means bitter. When the famine ends in Israel, Naomi hears about it, and so she decides to return back to her hometown of Bethlehem. And not wanting to take away an opportunity for her daughters-in-law to remarry and start life again, she urges them, go back to your own families. Of which Orpah returns to her family, but Ruth refuses to leave Naomi's side. It's like she sees the big picture here, and there's no way she's going to leave Naomi not only to journey alone back to Bethlehem, but to journey alone for the rest of her life. In fact, she makes an incredible commitment, one of loyalty to Naomi, that she will be there right to the very end. She makes this declaration. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So this is the kind of spirit with which Naomi, uh, Ruth uh, you know, declares to her mother-in-law that she is not going to leave her side. And so Naomi relents and lets Ruth come along. Now this act of loyalty of Ruth... Uh, gives her a good reputation, and when they come into Bethlehem, this story is going to be told, and they're going to know that this woman, who's a daughter-in-law and a Moabite, stood by the side of Naomi. Wherever people go, they hear this story, and ordinarily they would have been prejudiced against a person who was from the land of Moab, but in this particular case, this incredible character, this noble character wins out over the prejudices of the people. Now, it was the time of harvest, The story says, barley and wheat harvest. This is in the months of End of April through to the end of June. And being poor, Ruth goes out to glean in the fields to bring home some grain. It says, as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech, the deceased husband of Naomi. And we looked at this idea last week because it's one of the main themes in the book of Ruth. As it happens, or it just so happened, is a way of us saying that, wow, that's a coincidence. But for those who believe in the sovereign God, we believe his hand is at play in this story. And it is. And it's called God's providence. Providence is God using the supernatural, I mean, the natural events of our lives to do something supernatural. To take that which is ordinary and do something that's extraordinary. To weave together the everyday happenings of life in order to accomplish his plans and purposes. And we can't always see it, but he does. And we trust him with that. So it comes from a Latin word, actually two words, uh, pro, meaning before, and video, right? To see, or I see. In other words, God sees it beforehand. God sees it before it happens. He knows what is coming, therefore he can make good come out of the situation. He's God. Every hard and difficult situation in our lives, we believe that God is using for some good That he has a plan for. We just don't know what that might be. And we trust him with it. And that's exactly what he's doing for Naomi. And for Ruth as well. We looked at this verse. Because it seems to capture God's providence. In Romans 8.28 it says. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. And so for those who are willing to trust God with their life. You love him. We trust the fact that he is good. And he has plans and purposes. Naomi's situation was grave. Let's face it. She's lost her husband. She's lost two of her sons. She now has two daughters-in-law. And no one left to provide for them. She now just has her one daughter-in-law Ruth with her. So Naomi's appraisal is that the hand of God has been against her. She went away full but she's returned empty. But things were starting to change. She had returned. Remember we looked at that word a little bit too. Where it's the same word for repented. And Naomi has come home. She's come back under the protection and the provision of God. She's returned to her God. And now we're going to see that her God was not far off and her God not, had not forgotten her. Boaz showed kindness to Ruth. She worked in his field and he approaches her and expresses kindness and then says, you know what? Work amongst the women here. You'll be protected. If you need water, we got water for you. And he even instructed the men who were doing the harvesting to leave certain sheaves of grain out so that Ruth could pick them up and be able to have an abundance from her gleaning. So Boaz had showed this kind of kindness to Ruth. And it's interesting. He showed it on the basis of the fact that her reputation went before her. I don't know what or how he would have responded to her if he knew nothing about her. But he knew this, that she had been faithful to her mother-in-law, staying by her side. That she had lost her own husband and lost her own father-in-law. And that she left her own people to come here to Israel and that Boaz... A person of faith looks at it from the big picture and says this is God's plan. God wants foreigners to be taken care of and so you can glean in my field. But he also understands that there's a bigger picture at play. And that is the faith of this woman in the God of Israel is just starting to come into life. And he wants to nurture that along. And he says you've come to Israel and you'll be rewarded by the Lord under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Boaz told Ruth to stay there in his field. It was a safe place. It was a good place. And so she returns uh, from that field to Naomi with an abundance of grain, which was more than what the average person could have collected in the daytime. And Naomi's response is immediate. She goes, who did you go see? Whose field were you in? how is it that you have all this grain? Someone has shown you favor. Who is it? And Ruth replies, it's Boaz. And Naomi is aware of the fact that this man, Boaz, is the one who is a relative of her deceased husband, Elimelech. And this is a good sign, because she knows about the guardian redeemer, and what a law in Israel is, and she begins to make a plan. So that's where our story ended. Ruth is returned from gleaning the fields, and she carries on for the next couple of months through the barley harvest, through the wheat harvest, gleaning food, bringing it home. And it ends in chapter 2 with her saying, or with it saying that, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Yet again, that declaration that she was not going to leave Naomi's side. But you know that's not the end of the story. And so let's carry it on here in chapter 3, which is the chapter we're looking at today, beginning in verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had told told her to do. Now, Naomi is playing matchmaker. If you've ever watched uh, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, there's that Yente who's the one in town who puts together all the suitors for the girls. Um, and some of you kids are going, "What are you, you? This is twice in like a month you've talked about Fiddler on the Roof." Listen, I think every kid should watch it. It's a classic, okay? And you'll learn a lot about life. But uh, Naomi is playing the matchmaker. Boaz has been kind to them, but he has not actually elected to act on what he could have acted on, which was this thing called the law of the Leverite. And basically the law is that, in Israel, is that if a a woman was widowed, then the brother was to marry the widow and produce a child to keep the brother's family line going. Uh, Boaz was not a brother, Uh, he was a relative. So there's some kind of relational connection that's here, and at this time it seems like this carried an obligation. And maybe Naomi had hoped that Boaz would have acted on this law by now, because she knows that if he had, it would mean their own provision and protection for the rest of their lives, both for her as a widow and also for her daughter-in-law as a widow. They would be cared for. But so far, the man has not made a move. He's not done anything. And so the matchmaker goes to work and she has a plan and she wants to put this plan in action. She knows where Boaz will be tonight. He's going to be winnowing on the threshing floor. It's date night. And so she says to her daughter-in-law, "Wash up, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes." And you know there's some good advice in there, right? Just make the effort. Make the effort. It's worth it. It's going to pay good dividends. Years ago, I went to my buddy's place, and he was getting ready for a date that night, and we were just chumming around chit-chatting. He came out of the shower, and he was doing his hair, and he had moose, and he was rubbing the moose into his hair and flinging around just to get it set just right. And I was kind of watching this. He was whistling away, and he was totally excited, and he's like, it's date night. And then he takes his deodorant, and he does like five strokes on one side, five strokes on the other side, and I said, what are you doing? He goes, hey, man, you want to smell good. It's date night. I said, yeah, you want to smell good, but you don't want to burn a hole in your shirt either. It's date night. And you know, Ruth is is going to wash up and put on her perfume and put on her best clothes because she's going to go and see this man. And this is Naomi's instruction to her. Let's face it. Naomi has game, right? I mean, she's got moxie. She knows how romance works. And so she's going to help Ruth win the day with Boaz. Now, we have to understand the cultural element here that with no Husband for Naomi, it was her responsibility to now consider a suitor for her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who is a widow. The plan that Naomi has is really a risky one. I mean, quite frankly, it would take a lot of courage for Ruth to to obey her and act on it. Because, I mean, she could face rebuke from Boaz. She could even worse, face rejection. But she trusts her mother-in-law. In fact, she says, I will do whatever you ask of me. Now, this custom of a guardian redeemer is not one that Ruth is familiar with. From the land she comes from, they didn't practice that. It was one within Israel. And she was definitely not familiar with the approach that Naomi was telling her to do. To go down to that threshing floor and to do these certain things that she's outlined. But she's trusting Naomi. It's a very bold move. And so she went down to the threshing floor and did everything that her mother-in-law told her to do. Our story carries on. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian-redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning. If he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl or the shawl, pardon me. (laughs) Bring me the shawl that you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley, and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. Now our first thought about this plan of Naomi's might be, what is going on here? I mean, what is this plan to go and lay at Boaz's feet and uncover his feet and all this kind of stuff, right? So let's look at this. First off, let's start with the context of Boaz being at the threshing floor and sleeping there and sleeping at the far end of the pile. What is all of this imagery and what's going on here? Uh, We need to understand that um, the threshing floor represented where the end product was from all their hard work. So the grain has moved from the field and from being on sheaves to being knocked off to being in grain piles. And there's very, a lot of time and energy has gone into that. It's very expensive. You don't want to lose it. And so there's a bit of a a guarding your own grain pile mentality here because there are thieves that could come and steal it, and steal it at the last minute after you've put all your work and time and energy into it. So that's kind of the context as to why Boaz was at the threshing floor and sleeping there, which we might add, that probably was not a very comfortable sleep. So, you know, when I started to think about the threshing floor and how far that is removed from our own culture, I thought, you know, I've heard these terms over the years, threshing the grain, winnowing the grain, I've heard about sheaves and stooks, and I've heard about chaff and... uh, and uh, uh, kernels of grain, and the husk, and all that kind of stuff, but let's put it all together here. Um, I went and watched a a video this week about what it would have looked like in that time frame uh, for them to take their grain from the field to this threshing floor, and what was all uh, a part of it. So first off, you cut the stalks down at just the right time. They have to be dry, and then you take them, and you bundle them together in sheaves so that they can stand up and make like almost a pyramid with the Rationale being that those grain stalks are facing upward towards the sun, and now that they're cut, there's no more moisture coming into it, and the sun will dry that grain out really, really good. And then you've got to take those stooks, is what those are called, and you've got to bring in all of those sheaves, the individual wrapped stalks of grain, and you've got to bang them to the point where you knock off all of the grain. Now, there's various ways that you can do this. You can take a stick and beat it up and down. You can take a barrel like you see here and beat it over the barrel, but it's a really laborious process to try and get all of the grain off of the stock. Now, once you get that off of the stock, you're not done yet. You have to get rid of all of those husks that are still around the head of grain. So you have to usually begin with something like a pitchfork that throws it in the air and kind of gets the majority of it blowing away in the wind. And then the second stage to that cleaning, winnowing and cleaning process is almost by hand. Maybe you can use uh, a sieve to do this or most commonly at this time they would use the wind. They would throw the grain into the air, let the husk and the chaff blow off to the side, let the grain fall to the ground. So this was the process they went through. And Boaz is guarding all of his uh, product because he wants to sell it. Um, Or, of course, uh, use it for his own family to eat. Because it's hard work, at the end of the day, you celebrate. There's a little reward in there. And the reward is called a good meal and your favorite wine. And after he has had his good meal and his favorite wine, Boaz is in good spirits. And he's ready to go to sleep. Um, So that brings us to the second question we might have about Ruth going to his feet and uncovering them. Now this is a bit of an unusual thing, definitely in our culture, but the purpose of it isn't that hard to understand. It's actually quite simple. Um, In order for boys to truly be able to process the fact that there is a woman there and that she has this unique proposal request that she's going to make, um, he needs a little bit of time to sleep off that good spirit feeling. So a way to do that was to uncover his feet so that at a certain point in the night, after a few hours of sleep, probably, he would get cold feet. <laughs> that's actually a funny term to use for talking about a proposal. But anyways, he would get cold feet and wake up in the night, and uh, and he would turn, as it says in the text here. And when he turns, he sees that there's something, and in this case someone, and in this case a woman, at his feet. You know, it could have been a thief. Maybe that's why he startled, right? But it wasn't. It's a woman. You know, as his eyes adjust to the darkness, and like, what's going on? What is a woman doing here? And so he asks, who are you? And she says, I'm your servant Ruth. Ah, his heart probably relaxed at hearing that. And then she goes on to make this comment, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Okay, so that begs the third question here. What does it mean to spread the corner of your garment over me? Um, To get right to the point, it was a proposal. It was a way for Ruth to say, redeem me. It was a way of Ruth saying, I want you to marry me if you're willing to have me. You know, in Ezekiel 16, God uses the same language of spreading the corner of your garment for an illustration that he's using between himself as the groom and Israel, the nation, as his bride. And and he says that, you know, he nurtured this bride along, he nurtured this child along until they became an adult, until they were ready for marriage, until they were ready to have the corner of the garment spread over Israel and so it's this it's this you know um, way of saying that we're going to enter into the union of marriage and so it's a proposal that's what Ruth is doing here but it's interesting because the language of it is very similar to the previous chapter where when Boaz was blessing Ruth for being true to her mother-in-law and loyal to her mother-in-law he says that you know you've come here to Israel and God is the God who sees that God is the God who rewards that And then he says, you know, you've come under the wings of this God to take refuge. And so that idea of coming under the wing of God to take refuge is the same idea that Ruth has here in saying, cover me. I want to come under your wing of protection, Boaz. Take me as your wife. So it is an unexpected proposal from Ruth to Boaz. Yeah, it doesn't happen too often, right? Well, it happens here, right here in the Bible. Boaz accepts Ruth's proposal. You know, in essence, he's very aware of the fact that she could have gone on to other men. Um, you know, he, he his reply to her is, you know, he calls her daughter. Uh, blessed are you, my daughter, right? This kindness is greater than the one that you showed to me earlier by coming to my field and then by continuing to come back, right? Um, and, and also, you know, by staying with your, your mother-in-law, that, that, that whole spirit of Ruth in in her goodness, he's reflected back to her. Now this is even greater. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. (laughs) He's very aware of the fact that there were other men in Bethlehem younger. Whether rich or poor, it didn't matter. Just being younger alone probably put them as better candidates than himself to be the one to marry Ruth. But she also could have found a young person who was rich, and she hasn't chosen that at all. In fact, what she's doing, and this is what he knows, is that she's honoring this law of the the guardian redeemer. She is aware that by finding someone who's related to her in order to marry, will not only take care of her needs, but her mother-in-law's needs. It will also put the land of the family back into the family name. It will also mean that the firstborn son will inherit that land, and will carry on the name of Elimelech. And so, yes, all of that is taking place in this one little act of her uncovering his feet and saying, cover me with your garment. All of that is what's understood by Boaz about her actions. Seems like there's two laws that are being woven together here that we find in the Old Testament. The first one comes from Deuteronomy 25. And it says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son... His widow must not marry outside the family. So in this case, Ruth must not not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out of Israel. Now to be clear, Ruth is not an Israelite. It's by marriage, by marrying into Elimelech's family and being the daughter-in-law to Naomi that this relation has come to Boaz. So he's not a brother, but he's a relative. It could be that by the time of the judges that this law had started to take on various nuances, but it seemed to be understood that as a relative, he could and should play the role of kinsman or guardian redeemer. The other piece is the land. So the first part was the marriage. The second part is the land. Leviticus 25 says, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, so, you know, understandably, that's what Elimelech did. He probably sold off his property and then took the money and moved on to Moab. So if one of your relatives becomes poor and sells off their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold, the nearest relative. So the one that's closest to you, the one that should have the highest level of commitment through relationship, should be the one to come and buy back your land. And the idea there is that they would buy the land, and uh, they would use it for a time that you needed your money in order to live, but at a certain time that land would go back to the people and stay in the family name. Now if you were poor, and you had to sell your your land this was just simply a way to stay alive but God didn't want the nation of Israel to find themselves driven into poverty so he always made through his laws these provisions of how to get back out of there and he made laws like you can't charge interest when you make a loan and that if you took something as security as a down payment and the person was poor return it to them by the end of the day and never never could you take a millstone As security from a person because the millstone was how they were going to make their bread to eat that night. So the law included all of these things to try to protect the nation of Israel from ending up in poverty. And this is just another expression of that. So if your husband were to die, your brother-in-law was to take you as a wife and bear a child through you. or So that you could bear a child. And that would keep your, your former husband's name alive in Israel. Boaz would be accomplishing both of these things. This was what was called the Leverite vow, or Leverite, pardon me, law of Israel. I uh, thought I had a slide there, folks. My apologies, I can't find it, so I'll just speak it. The Leverite law was both of these things together that you would keep the family name going. Boaz, to be clear, is not marrying for land, he's marrying for love. He's marrying for love. He already had a lot of land. He didn't need more land. He didn't think he ever had a chance with this young woman and probably a beautiful woman. And now he's willing to take her in. And not only take her in, but if he fulfills this law, if a child is born, then that child inherits this land that he's just paid for. And not only does he inherit that land, but he probably also has claim on the rest of Boaz's wealth as well. Ruth seems to do exactly what Naomi has asked of her, and a little bit more. If you read that text closely, you see that she kind of advances what Naomi has instructed her to do. It seems like Ruth has a little bit of moxie too, and knows what to do. She has risked it all. Her reputation, she put it all on the line, and Boaz has not disappointed her. He goes on to say, blessed are you, my daughter. Just using this language of calling her daughter, it's like she's no longer a foreigner. She's no longer Ruth the Moabitess. She is Ruth, my daughter. It's family now. Don't be afraid, he says to her. Whoa, don't be afraid of what? Don't be afraid of a Gentile woman being redeemed by a Jewish man. I will take you in as my wife. Don't be afraid. Why? Because you're a woman of noble character and everyone knows it. Everyone knows that what you've done for your mother-in-law means they don't look upon you with the prejudices they have by being a Moabitess it's okay. And don't be afraid that I am going to stall or take my time. I will take care of this in a very timely fashion. I will take care of you. I will follow through. I will make sure it happens. If the other guy is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Boaz wakes up early in the morning before dawn because um, he wanted to make sure that she could get home without people seeing that a woman had come to sleep at the threshing floor and to sleep at his feet. And if word got out, maybe, just maybe, talk of what might have happened that night between a Jewish man and a Gentile woman. And that would have jeopardized the whole guardian-redeemer plan that was about to be enacted upon. And so he wants to send her home kind of under the cover of night as it's just kind of becoming daylight, but he doesn't want to send her home without sending her with a gift. A very large amount of grain. In fact, we know it's a large amount because he had to place the bundle on her. And she takes this home to her mother-in-law. What is this guy doing? This guy wants to leave no doubt about the fact that he is going to follow through On what he said he's going to do for Ruth. He wants to send a message that says, I'm not just kind of in, you know, okay, I guess we could make this arrangement happen. He's all in. That's the message he's sending. I mean, this, whatever six measures of, because it doesn't fill in what it exactly is. It was so large, she had to place it on her back, and she has to carry this thing home. And when Naomi sees it, she's just blown away by how large of a gift this is. So when Ruth returns to her mother in law, Naomi asks, How did it go, my daughter? In other words, Give me the details. (laughs) This is what my wife does to me every time there's something, and I come home, she's like, come on, come on. And there's always question upon question upon question. Well, mother-in-laws want to know about their daughter-in-law when they go on a date. Tell me all about it. Give me the details. How did it go? Is it going to happen? Then Ruth told her everything that Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. You can almost feel the excitement here, right? Like, this is exciting. This story is one of the best stories because of the fact that it is a romance story, and it's got all these elements of excitement, and here we have this woman knowing very well that the man would be restless, and he would settle the matter quickly. I love the realness of this story. You know, Ruth puts on perfume. Boaz can't believe that she's going to... Uh, That he's going to be the one to marry this woman. Uh, He sends Ruth home with a large gift. To butter up the mother-in-law. Like he's just pulling out all the stops. And Naomi reads them like a book right. Naomi knows by the signs. That she's reading here. That this man is not going to wait. He is going to settle this matter today she says. And I love that. It's like a chess match of romance. Where Naomi has been playing certain pieces. In this chess match. And then she looks at how. Boaz has played his pieces as he reciprocates, leaving Naomi with this confidence that it's truly checkmate. The man will not rest until he settles the matter today. Well, that's our story to this point. And as I reflect on it, I ask myself, well, what is it that we kind of see and learn here? There's probably lots of things, tidbits of pieces of information, but in the bigger narrative of tracking the life of Naomi, the one who says, I have, I, I left Bethlehem full and I returned empty. That was her statement. The hand of God is against me. I think we're beginning to see that that emptiness is turning to fullness. That she is not forgotten by God as we have said. And that the hand of God is not against her as she assumes. But it is hard to trust God when life takes an unexpected and downward turn. I mean none of us blame Naomi for thinking the thoughts she thought about God or the way that it felt to her in the loss of her husband and her children. That's understandable. And you know, each week I, I speak with people. People have stories where life has been hard, where there's been loss and tragedy. It, it's a part of life. Sometimes there's also sin. Sin that has been, you know, a willful choice to go in a direction that's left with a consequence to it. And, you know, the the phrase about Naomi returning to God and it being an understanding of, like, repentance, coming home under the refuge and shelter of God, that's a true Christian principle as well, that wherever we might be down a road of sin, we can return to God. We can repent and come back. We can come back to the provision and the hand and the blessing of God as he continues to work out his plan for our lives. You know, Naomi returned to God and. Found out that she was not forgotten. And Ruth, who had sacrificed everything, was a huge risk to not only leave what she had by what was familiar, but also to come to a land where she would probably, you know, as a foreigner and as a widow, be looked down upon. Poor, too. That, that she would face discrimination. And she risked that because she wanted to be there for her mother-in-law. And God's plans and purposes included her as well. And they were good. So how do those two elements apply to your life? Where are you in your story with God and trusting him with your life? Are you living the consequences of sin that have you feeling like the hand of God is against you? Then the message would be return to him. Repent and experience the blessing of forgiveness and experience the joy of obedience. Are you wondering about God's goodness because to no fault of your own no sinful behavior you have suffered misfortune in some way shape or form and you're wondering God if I'm obedient to you why am I not seeing the good things that I see other people experiencing why is my story not their story and maybe there's hurt and there's brokenness and there's fear and there's a wondering about the goodness of God or maybe there's even a heart of destitute a heart that's destitute and the question there is can you trust god with your life can you trust that romans 8:28 is true and it's for you and are you willing to cling to god to seek god and to walk in his way and allow the time that's needed for his plan to be worked out for you this story is about meeting someone who loves you and maybe your story is i haven't met that someone yet And I don't understand why. I washed. And I put in the perfume. And I went out on the date. And it didn't work. Well you know what? God has plans and purposes for each of us. And it doesn't always include marriage. And you need to trust God with your life too. Even in that difficult situation and circumstance. God is good. God will lead you. Can you trust him? As God is at work behind the scenes in the story of Ruth and Naomi. To work out his plan for good. And they didn't know what that plan looked like. So it is that God is at work in our life, working out his plans for good, and we don't know what his plans are either. We pray, we trust him, we walk in obedience with him, and we look for his providential hand in our lives, and his leading. And so the question I'm asking us today is, can you trust him with your life? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this beautiful and amazing story One that on one hand is just exciting and fun to read as a love story. And on the other hand, it is a demonstration of your working behind the scenes to bring about a situation that's going to be used for so much good. That's going to be used for a plan that goes well beyond any human understanding of what it could have been used for. So in our limitation, may we simply trust you, the one who is unlimited. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you and thank you for joining us today. We just want to remind you that on May 29th, we're going to be having that celebration of remembering, or remembering, celebrating Robin Diana Schaaf time here, and if you want to join us in person, you can do so, or come afterwards for an outdoor, maybe that's, uh, you know, a little safer for you. Uh, it's going to happen around 11.30 outside where we have the barbecue, so I hope that you consider May 29th as a day that you come and join us for that, and to say farewell to Robin Diana Schaaf. God bless you, and have a great week. Thanks for listening. You can go to SardisFellowship.com for more information. Have a great day.